This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mayen. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumeble. And our topic this week is... Three years of Swift usage. Yes, I'm finally doing my follow-up episode about my Swift episode from two years ago. Are you sure we haven't done a single Swift follow-up episode since then? I think there was at least one. Ah, uh, looking at my notes, I don't think we did. Oh, well, cool. Or maybe, you know what, I think maybe a couple of elements in follow-up, but not in, like, a lot of topics I wanted to revisit. I did not revisit them. Let's put it this way. And maybe I'm just being confused with the yearly um, deployment target episodes that we started doing, where maybe you could have jammed a couple things in there. Yeah, I think there was maybe a couple of software fans, but they were more regarding the APIs I was referring in those deployment target episodes and less about Swift itself. All right. But before we get to that, I have some follow-up. So starting up on episode 35, called A Series of Disappointments, uh, we talked about Sony consoles and we speculated about the upcoming PlayStation VR release. And now, years later, uh, it turns out that I now own a PlayStation VR headset. This was completely Ooh. unplanned uh, last year when we recorded the Game of the Year episode, but I now have one. But we won't be talking about it on this episode because that is the topic of the next episode. So we will do an entire episode on that next uh, in two weeks. So stay tuned for that. On episode 60, Tears in My Eyes, we talked about <laughs> Zelda Breath of the Wild. <laughs> and... Something interesting happened on forums today. Uh, enough time seems to have passed since the release of Breath of the Wild that people are starting to realize that maybe Breath of the Wild wasn't quite as good as everybody <laughs> said it was back when it was released. Uh, and uh, the main theme I'm seeing is people are just generally burnt out on uh, open world games. And so now there's starting to be a little bit of a backlash uh, against Breath of the Wild, which I found very interesting and entertaining because on that episode, I did state that there is kind of a cyclical nature to Zelda releases where everybody is super excited when the new Zelda comes out and they're like, it's the best Zelda ever. And then like a year and a half, two years later, they're like, yeah, after all, Ocarina of Time was the best Zelda, which is also not true, but <laughs> they still say it every single time. Uh, so I guess, I guess we should reinvite Tony to this episode, to this podcast to see what is his thoughts about Zelda, about the ride. But I can tell you for sure that he's still playing it quite heavily. Oh wow! Oh yes, I think last time he played it was a couple of days ago. Interesting. Uh, but anyway, I, I was just saying that because, as usual, I'm right. Okay, next episode. <laughs> <laughs> you are never right. Come on with the video game consoles. And sixty four. And sixty four. And 64. We'll see about that. Uh, on episode 82, titled What You're Describing is Gambling, we talked about Nintendo Mobile Games. And in fact, today we got two news stories about this. Uh, the first one came out this morning, and the second just broke literally 20 minutes ago. Uh, so the first news story is that Mario Kart Tour, which was supposed to come out in March, has been delayed until summer, which continues the pattern of Nintendo Mobile Games being delayed a couple times before coming out. Uh, I think it was womp, technically womp. supposed to come out like winter 2018 or like earlier winter 2018. And then it was pushed to like, uh, now actually it was supposed to come out last summer and then it got pushed to the end of the fiscal year and then it got pushed to summer. And when is uh, Nintendo's uh, fiscal year ending? In March, which is why it oh, okay. Okay. was supposed to come out in March. Uh, so that was the first piece of news this morning. And that made me very sad because literally Agreed. last week I was IMing you and I was like, wasn't there supposed to be a Mario Kart on mobile? <laughs> yes. And then like this happened this morning. Uh, 
And then, uh, just before we started recording, uh, Nintendo announced that there is going to be a new Dr. Mario game coming out on mobile systems, iOS and Android. Ooh, nah, I'm excited. Developed in collaboration with Line and NHN. NHN is the parent company uh, to Line. Uh, mm. And it's going to be free with in-app purchases. So it's very interesting. Uh, it's strange that they're not doing anything with DNA. In fact, the last two uh, Nintendo mobile games, Dragalia and this one, were done without DNA. So I'm not sure if like there was a fight between Nintendo and DNA for some reason. Uh, but like they've been out of the picture recently, which is strange. So DNA made Animal Crossing, if I recall correctly. Yeah, they they were involved with it, but like after that. Mm. Dragalia Lost came out, and then Psy Games huh. did that one, and then this one is with Line and NHN. So we haven't really seen them since then. I don't know if it's because Animal Crossing kind of flopped. I I hope that this game, uh, this uh, Doctor Mario game, will be available here, even if it's developed by Line. Uh, it sounds like it. Oh, that's good. That's good. Good. And technically, like Disney Tsum Tsum, which is super popular, uh, is also developed by Line and requires a Line account. So. Hmm. We'll see. Last episode, does this item give you heart palpitations? We talked about Marie Kondo and her interpreter. Well, it turns out that I wasn't the only person who was intrigued by her interpreter, and someone made an interview with her, uh, which is titled, Marie Kondo's interpreter is unsung hero of KonMari phenomenon over at Quartz. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. There is actually a photo of her notebook, which she uses a lot uh, in her interviews, which was very interesting. And there's a lot of talk about what the role of an interpreter is. So cool stuff there. Speaking of things that don't spark joy, on episode <laughs> 89, we talked about Twitter alternatives. And right oh, before yeah. we started recording, I canceled my micro.blog subscription. Whoa! Yes. Oh, that's big news. Seriously, I'm unsure if I'll be able to do my Swift episode after this news. No, no, no. We can do it. I'm just going to read. There was a comment field on the why you're canceling your subscription box. And I think I summed it up into a single paragraph that pretty much gives why I don't want to keep paying for this. So I'm going to read it, and then we can move on to the main topic. (laughs) We'll try. I can't find anyone whose content I care about enough to continue paying because you only have curated views of posts that don't cater to what I specifically want to find and your marketing makes it hard to recruit anyone to join. Mastodon has an easy pitch. Imagine Twitter, but as a network of servers that can talk to each other like email. Micro.blog is impossible to pitch to millennials because none of us see Twitter as anything related to blogging and yet all of the marketing revolves around blogging. I prefer the micro.blog semi-centralized approach to Mastodons, but if I can't get anyone I care about to join the service, what's the point? Being India web-friendly should be a niche feature, not the defining feature, because practically nobody cares. So there we go. That's the reason I gave in my comments. I think it was polite enough, uh, and it is also a pretty scathing uh, critique of what I dislike about the service, which I haven't visited for like six months. So I thought, why should I keep paying? Hmm. So, what you what will you be using for your next Japan trip and all your pictures and all that stuff? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I guess we'll see next year. Yeah. Oh wow! Was that it for your follow up? Yes, it was. I'm not sure how can I continue this episode now. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked to be honest. 
but we will. No <laughs> worries, Yannick. I'm sure they will be like, what? Am I dropping this episode? No, come on. Come but on. I have whiskey with me here, so I'm going to drink away uh, the pain. Yes, okay. Please do. Uh, I'm not sure if I should say please do that. Okay. Oh, well. I guess we'll see later. So, like I said in the introduction, uh, this week's topic is uh, kind of a three years, like, looking back at Swift. Uh, and this is a direct follow-up episode to my uh, two-year-old episode about me being a Swift developer. Uh, if you recall, or if you were with us uh, nearly two years ago, episode 55 titled God Save Objective-C, Long Live Objective-C, was about my thoughts of being a Swift developer about uh, around nine months of using it. So uh, just to give back some history, I'm still at the same place where I was uh, nearly two years ago at a company called Lightspeed POS. And uh, I work on an app that is a point-of-sale system for the retail industry. And we kind of mostly skipped the uh, Swift 1.0 days and uh, started to um, not migrate, but started to use Swift around the days of 2.1. And that's a couple of months after uh, starting to use it uh, that I did miss this episode. So this episode was in December 2016. And we my first commits and my first like commitment to the project that was mainly in Swift was with the first... Uh, kind of a semi-public uh sdk we have uh that was fully in swift and that was kind of the we needed to develop it and that was also not an excuse but kind of a reason for me to learn swift and that was my first big some wasn't that big project but somewhat of a specific size uh swift projects so um in this episode i've uh add some important topics that i looked into that i would like to revisit tonight and also there's new stuff that i want to do at that time uh, it was important to know that we were still at swift 2.1 even or maybe some of the 2.x uh so i'm always mixing up the version numbers but all of this is is in December 2016 when I did my uh, review of Swift and my giving you all my opinions about it. Uh, I did not live any Swift migration. And now looking at my notes, two years later, we survived the Swift 2.3. We survived the Swift 3.4. And this morning, we just finished the Swift 4, 4 to 4.2 uh, migration. And as one of the topics I want to revisit we will be talking about the swift migrations so um it's this the the black pass episode started with me kind of giving giving some of the reason why we were trying swift and also why we were moving from swift and some of the functionality i liked but at that point we didn't there were some pains we had but we didn't felt the biggest pain you will feel by being a swift developer and it is version migrations the biggest one happens nearly two years ago, uh, more than two years ago, excuse me, when Apple introduced Swift.3. And as if you might recall, if you're a Swift developer, that was the big one that kind of cemented uh, how the language should look. So a lot of features were uh, removed and also most of the foundation library was renamed to make the naming of the objects and function more of a Swifty uh, way. So something that is kind of uh, native to the Swift language and that um, I wouldn't say respect, but kind of follows uh, what the Swift team thinks that uh, co Swift code should look like and also libraries should look like. So that mainly meant if you were an iOS developer that a lot of your code base 
add to be not thrown uh, thrown in the trash but add to be migrated because there was a lot of find and replace that a tool like a migrator could do for you to move from the old naming to the new naming at that point it was also kind of a in-between step and that is kind of a recurring uh there's a current team that will happen throughout all of the migrations. When they announce a new Swift version, it usually coincides with uh, an OSDK update. And SDK updates means new APIs, new functionality. They also might fix some bugs. So they usually take the opportunity to uh, let you use the old APIs. The new, excuse me, the new APIs, but an, with an old Swift version. And usually it entails small migration. Uh, those versions are usually called like the .2.3 because uh, the way Apple kind of is releasing Swift version in the last two years is more or less like you have the big .0 that is released in September with all the OS updates. There might be uh, a point one before the Christmas or before the holidays and maybe a point two uh, in the spring and then uh, there's a point three, uh, around uh, at the same time that the next uh, Swift version is released to kind of help you bridge the gap between the old version of that year to the new version. The main problem with that migration is it was quite painful. Uh, I think now that it has been completed and kind of in the past, I understand why it was needed. But I'm so happy that we don't do that every year. I think it's kind of one of the promise that the Swift engineers and the team developing Swift kind of kept saying that we need this big one for now and we understand it's going to be a pain in the butt, but we won't do it yearly. And if I can just jump in here, one of the things that made it even worse in the early days of Swift was that they were still not done auditing all the frameworks they're still not done sometimes well okay but you you know what i mean like the footprint yeah, yeah, that yeah. is covered is much greater now than it used to be oh of course whereas there were much meatier chunks that were getting audited uh which for, for context uh what auditing means in this context is that uh, they would look at objective c apis and they would add little annotations to the source code that would tell it how to convert certain things to swift uh better and those things could impact like whether or not your code would compile because sometimes you were doing checks that were no longer needed or impossible to do uh, and then you would have to remove them because now the Swift compiler is smart enough with those annotations to just do it for you. And I think that uh, what happened in the last few years is uh, those annotated, like Swift grew in the uh, Objective-C grew with those annotation to make the transition uh, of those APIs to Swift uh, easier. And also the fact that as its unoriginal goal, like Swift is still open source, it's still an open community, like anybody can contribute to it. And um, something I didn't discuss too much, but the Swift evolution like repo on their uh, GitHub repo is quite an amazing uh, place to go. And if you can, as you can see, I think this year Apple was saying that out of the two, I think we were around like 210, uh, like, like evolution proposal for Swift. And I think somewhat like 40 to 50 minimum. I don't have the numbers, but I recall that like nearly half, because I recall the slide, like, ah, like here's all of what the community proposed and we have implemented in the last few Swift versions. So, and I see, I saw a lot of them that are making Swift better, but also like kind of 
put real day-to-day -day problems that could also be traced back to some of those objective C like migration problems in the face of the Swift developers. And that is kind of, uh, nice. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me as, uh, personally to kind of, uh, be, uh, involved in the day to day of that stuff. But when I kind of do drive by updates, but just like spending a couple of days, uh, looking into it, that happens every couple of months and preparing for this podcast this week was one of more, or one of those, my, uh, those, uh, drive by updates. Let's put it this way. There's a lot of stuff that uh, you can find and there's also the fact that all of those discussions are happening in public could be problematic and we've seen some like cases where what was proposed in the evolution uh, channels were kind of backtracking a couple in a future evolution uh, proposal but uh, to me it feels like as an programmer and developer to see that on the language and I need to base my day-to-day -day stuff was I want to say something missing from a DC but at least something that puts Swift on par with other languages that are quite popular these days, and that I kind of quite like. If I go back to the Swift migration, and we ignore this small attention about the uh, Swift evolution, which I strongly suggest that you follow, the other problem with the Swift 2 to 3 migration is there was a lot of stuff to do, a lot of stuff that was manual, and at that point, the migrator was quite buggy. The promise that Apple gave to developers that say, we built a tool for you, uh, to migrate your code. You'll see, you run the migrator, it works fine and blah, blah, blah. What well, I want to say it's a, it was a lie, but it was kind of a, oh, if you have this size of code base and you don't have too much unit tests or like you have like specific unit tests in Swift, that would be well. But I think on our code base at that point, we might add like, uh, 400 to 500 at minimum, excuse me, of Swift files and most of them were touched during that migration. So you can imagine the scale of doing that and you might have read, uh, our stories of like teams being like stopped for a week. So all the devs could do the migration and pass to something, uh, go on Swift 3. And let's be honest, like the reason the migrator sucked is because it was sort of based on Xcode Swift refactoring features that weren't done yet. Yes, yes, because the migrator is way better these days. And also, I think the volume of changes required to go from one version to the other is shrinking and shrinking every version. So that also like helps the migrator being simpler and also like make sure it doesn't make mistakes. Uh, a good example of that is, uh, in, in the, the migrator for four, the four, the migrator for Swift 4.2, like the migrator can inject code, uh, uh, to fix some of the mistakes you did. Not only like do renames, but literally like inject. I'm sure they're like kind of statically defined in the, the migrator that if you happen to follow this rule, you need to get this code. But that, that's to me was like you click a couple buttons and then you look at your diff and then yes, you might go and go back and change those method to make it look better and not like rely on internal kind of dummy methods that uh, will like i think one of the example i've encountered were about uh enums using the raw value but i don't really care about the raw value with the new api so i just used the normal enum value but it, it is to say that looking at what we've done to do those and now like two years after like looking to this i don't really miss those and i'm quite happy that apple uh and the swift team did maintain their goal of making sure that yes there's going to be source problems there will be source incompatibilities from version to version but they seem to minimize it 
every version. But a lot has changed still in Swift and the next big step was when we moved to Swift 4 earlier this year. Uh, and in Swift 4, it, and the, the migration from Swift 3 to Swift 4 kind of caused some of our favorite topic about Swift to come back uh, on top. Do you recall what was that topic? Dynamism in Swift? Question mark? You, you are correct. <laughs> oh, god damn it. I thought we were done talking about this. Um, we were. Though the main difference between the Swift 3 and Swift 4 is there was a lot of inferences about the uh, runtime behaviors of your object in Swift 3. So there was a lot of objective inference done by the compiler for you without you having to annotate your code to say, I want the objective C runtime behavior. And that inference was no longer the default value, the default behavior for Swift 4. On top of that, uh, the Swift team decided that we would have two keywords to annotate depending on what we would need. We would have one keyword called dynamic that refers to the dynamic, like allocation of like tables, like comparing like that's some of the language that I'm less used to, but like the typical like, Take C like that, where you have all of you have a V table of all the other steps to the function, and then you just like completely point to it versus the typical object message sent that we know with Objective C. Before kind of those two concepts of Objective C and dynamism were inter like were linked together in Swift three, and now uh, the Swift team has decided that in Swift four those two concepts were completely separated, as you might expect. If you add an app that was first developed in Objective C and you did the rewrite in the Swift 2 or even the Swift 1 days, when you arrive at the Swift 3, yes, you might have more and more of your objects and classes and files and architecture in Swift or in a Swifty way, but you still have a lot of your stuff that is and also is required to work with some of the Objective C behavior because let's be honest, a lot of our, like, UIKit is still based and architected around the Objective C mechanisms. So um, it was kind of a, quick, a big migration again because uh, because they were not doing the inference anymore. Finding the issues required you to retest your whole app because in most cases it could either crash at runtime. That will be the worst case, but at least it's easy to find. Or just fail silently because now your object no longer no longer responds to a selector. So if it's something like a delegate or a data source, um, and there's already check in the OS to just say, oh, do you respond to this selector for table view, uh, for table view delegate, and now you don't, then some of your table view behavior might just be completely broken, but it doesn't crash the application. So that that, that was kind of hard to... Uh, to migrate. Of course, a migrator kind of give you most of it, and not for free, but kind of give you the f big first pass. After that, you had to run your app. Uh, there was a, a couple of there was a couple of debugger flag that you can pass it to detect which type of behavior you want to have internally uh, while you develop. Whether you just uh, log in the console, log in the console plus the stack, and then the third value was you log in the console, the call stack plus crash the application at all times, whether uh, whether it was inferred or not. So that was some tools to help you, but this one compared to the renaming, which is was more like kind of not static analyzing of the code, but it was more like manipulating the string in your code base versus like really 
reflecting on what was the behavior your code was describing. And this one to me felt a little bit scarier than the big renaming. The big renaming was tedious, was long to do, but and, uh, and the main problem is it affected a lot of, uh, a lot of your code base. For those, uh, you might have like you might have forgotten about an implicit dependency on the obc runtime behaviors that maybe the run the migrator couldn't find by just kind of analyzing your code. In most cases, it was able to do it, but you still end up having to run your app and like play with your app, test your app. Uh, you could have UI automation to help for that, which we didn't have. Uh, we didn't. We don't have. So it was really a lot of manual testing. But the way I recall it is it was something that we did at the beginning of a release cycle, enable all of the crashing methods, make sure that any time that Swift 4 would do, no, Swift 3 will do inference, and now in Swift 4 it wouldn't do, we would make sure that it crashed 100% of the time so we can fix it. And in the end, uh, it was not that bad, but it was still another migration where a lot of our code base was modified. So I have a question for you. Uh, this question is going to seem dumb, but we have to remember uh, that the last time I did Swift, Swift development, Swift 2 had just come out. <laughs> so it's been yeah, a long yeah. time. Uh, there have really been like no changes to UIKit to make more affordances to Swift code in particular, right? It's still like, like, like hearing you talk about de- delegates and selectors and all that stuff, like it's still fundamentally built on that. And you can't just pass like function pointers or whatever instead, right? No, you're correct. Uh, I think what Apple is slowly but surely doing is make sure that the way you write the code or you, the way you access those API, they look Swift code. Yeah. They look like Swift code. And I think the best example of that is in Swift 4.2 because it was mainly to me is renaming of some, like, I think the best example I can give you is UI table view automatic dimension the, the 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 kind of the global variable you pass at some of the delegates to just say i want automatic sizing on my cells like those now are like ui table view dot and they're like kind of namespace per the object or per the context they were before and not before they were because before they were global variable and the global namespace of ui kit now they're like properly attached to where they should in theory fit um, and that's what I see is they did the big renaming in Swift 3 and in the later version they were always like finding all of this oh we forgot this in Swift and uh, in, in, in specific API uh, also in Swift 2 I realized that some of the some of the app extension APIs were still not properly uh, audited for Swift users and in Swift 4.2 they did that so a good example is I was a lot I was uh doing a lot of casting say like oh here I have an array of any but no I know because it's an Objective API that it will always be an array of like an S I extension item if I recall correctly the object but it was nice because when I run the Swift 4.2 migrator it found those it found those cases and just removed it so because of this like uh, small and small profiling of UI kit and all Apple frameworks like the migrator becomes better at finding this and it becomes like to me at this point and that's what i liked about the swift 4.2 is the biggest changes were places where you use the most ui kit Hmm. and that's okay but if it's something i just like click it migrates everything runs fine 
and I just change the flag from like this version of Swift to that version of Swift. I expect um, that changing of a version can mean that is going to break my source code. Hopefully, going from one version to the other in the future, it won't happen. Like that's the end goal at some point. That running the code that was like running on Swift 4, like if it's running in Swift 5, when we talk about Swift 5, that I should not modify my code uh, at all and I can just flip the switch from 4 to 5 and it still compiles correctly and without errors. But when I'm in Swift 5 mode, um, uh, I just end up with being able to use the functionality that Swift 5 provides. So you're correct. Uh, I hope that we will see more new APIs doing that. There's, a, I forgot, is that one of the core ML APIs that is Swift only? I think it's the training model one that now. I think so, yeah. So we start to see like kind of like just small glimpse in the future. And it's funny because there was a lot of stuff I was kind of hopeful that they were at, they would happen. Like we talked about like Swift source code compatibility in Swift three days and right. it's still not there. <laughs> uh, we will be talking about ABI stability because this is coming, yep. but I have a couple of migration note, notes again, but there's still topics that maybe people were a bit hopeful and be like, Oh, let's move too fast. But the, like the Swift community and the Swift team specifically, Realize that no, we need to move slowly on those topics to make sure we do the right thing and the right thing because we want it to be a language used everywhere, not only an Apple platform. And I think this is where they did the major advancement in the past two years is making Swift usable in different contexts that are not typical Apple contexts. And we will touch one that I'm quite curious and that was quite curious two years ago and it's uh swift backend but more on that later okay i have two follow-up questions though i'll try to make them very quick yes. um so the first one is do you think that like the implicit dependency on objective c is hurtful to new swift developers uh that are coming to uh apple platforms for the first time and are learning through swift and now they have like all of this baggage from objective c and the second question is do you think that the implicit dependency on all of this object C baggage is part of the reason why people are gravitating towards frameworks like RX Swift that sort of abstract a lot of that stuff away? So this implicit dependency on Objective C is more and more becoming explicit. And mm. this big change from Swift 3 to Swift 4 to make like a best example I can give you is before when you like when you were attaching a selector to your target for your button, because like a button works with the object message chains. Like, if you don't understand that, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want to explain what I'm object pretty C sure message people who don't understand that have long <laughs> yes, stopped listening to the episode. Let's say, let's just describe it that like the the buttons in UIKit rely a lot on the runtime functionality. That sometime at some point when you run the application, there's a method called X that I can call dynamically. Yeah. Before it was implying that that will happen. Now I would just complain like. It, now what it would do is it would crash at runtime because it was like, no, th- there's no method because you didn't tell me to expose it. And that's what they've done with this uh, dynamic keyword and this at object keyword. The at object keyword is used to mean that this method is visible through the Objective-C bridge. So if you use your Swift code through Objective-C, 
that this method is visible, but that doesn't mean that it is called using obc message send. It might still be using the typical like static definition of a method pointer using a vtable to find the address of the function and blah, 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 like what Swift does naturally. You need to add dynamic as a keyword and part of, I'll put a link to the uh, 160 Swift evolution because this one is quite interesting to read uh, again. And I read it again because this is where they kind of start to say that the reason why we separated dynamic and Objective-C is maybe, and it is maybe because in the future, we might have a different dynamic behavior for Swift. It might not mean <laughs> it, but at least right now, it makes it clear that if you want dynamic behavior, you are required to put at obc because the dynamic behavior is for the Objective-C runtime. So you might, to answer your question, you might still not understand the concept of Objective-C, but at least they are making those clear. They're making those explicit. And that was from the get-go. What One of the goals of Swift is making your code more explicit, whether it's by type safety, whether it's by those new functionality. Uh, this is making your code explicit. doesn't mean you understand what it means. Right, which is the thing, right? Because in Objective-C, like, the fact that everything is dynamic all the time, for the most part, uh, makes it that you don't really have to think about it. Whereas now, if you have to explicitly state these things, you have a lot more concepts you need to understand. And the reasons why these concepts are relevant are based on historic knowledge of how Objective-C does things. And now you have all of this obc baggage even though like technically the flag is no longer obc specific like you still need to know like why it's there to understand why you're doing it oh totally and and it's a lot of baggage that i think like newcomers to the platform are going to be like what the fuck is this shit because like c sharp never really has to care about that you're correct and i think that's why they are making this they are helping this distinction a good example i can give you where you would use one and not the other but you're required to use the other and both at the same time is imagine you i use my example of the button again to make your method still available for the button you still need to expose it to objective c even if internally it's called via v table and not like true objective c the message send that's okay so for a button you can just do at option your IB action and it works. But if you need to use KVO, for example, on your properties or mm. stuff like that, now you need to put dynamic because now you want to say this is accessible through the Objective-C.message then. And of course, because of this, you end up with slower like method calls that are like 10,000 million calls. All of the downsides we know about that, but all the upsides too. So you, as a Programmer that knows, you declare your upsides, and for people that don't know, they sadly need to learn it still. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me because I know what you're talking about, but like, put yourself in the mind of a newcomer and it's like, this no. shit makes no sense. <laughs> this shit makes no sense. You're correct. And I think that, that I think will transition to your second point about uh, other technology, like uh, whether it's RX, which we'll talk later to in much <laughs> details, but like, whether it's RX or Reactive or any of those technologies, like, to me, they might be abstracting some of these. Uh, th- so you might be more familiar with it. And that's why I think people sometimes will be tempted to use them versus like relying on Objective-C stuff because they abstract differently this Objective-C legacy behavior on top that on top of a different concept 
like the signal concept that some of those directive libraries and kind of the stream of events and uh and it just fits very well with swift's functional programming concepts that are really hot nowadays you're correct oh yeah yeah, totally totally and that's kind of why we might have i might have started to learn about these but more on that later. More well, on yeah. That later. So, so I, I'm done interrupting you. You can continue with your stuff. No, that's I just okay. thought it was like a very interesting thing to bring up. And yes, and that's that. Let me look quickly. That should be the last uh, mention of dynamism in Swift we will have in this episode. Good. <laughs> um, maybe in the conclusion, but uh, in general, like that. To me, that was kind of the last time where that topic came back. Who was when they were having the discussion versus like the dynamic keyword and the objective C behavior and making more explicit when you, when you need to do it or not and not relying on a compiler that implicitly, that implicitly implies it. I'm sure it'll or, come back in nine months. That's also cyclical in the Swift community <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, it felt also to me that the Swift war was kind of the, uh, Oh, no, I might be backtracking on the statement, but I won't. So it <laughs> feels to me that Swift 4 is kind of becoming the first kind of mature version of Swift. Uh, we are, we got first class citizen, like kind of definition of like concepts that were maybe in Objective-C hard to do or done differently, but now done in a really Swift way. Uh, a good example of that is the definition of like codable and decodable as protocol. Uh, they are like protocol and foundation where you can define that an object is encodable slash codable and decodable. And those are quite powerful because they are also bringing, if, uh, they also included like a foundation JSON encoder and decoder. So you can easily have JSON encoding and decoding. Or you can also have your own encoder and decoder. And kind of just declare conformance to this protocol and everything happens for free. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about C Sharp is we have the similar kind of thing. And we have that now in Swift too. And I, I've seen I've seen it examples not used in the code base I work daily, but in some other code bases at work. And they're kind of not magic because I understand what they've done, but it is still magic to me because it is kind of simple in the way they work but mm, super magic and super brilliant in the way they work at the same time. Uh, another one I liked that was introduced in Swift 4 that is kind of really rely regarding all your some of your comments about the TC is keypads are now a first-class citizen object. They kind of they, they have their own syntax sugar, their own their own syntax, excuse me. They all, they have also their own objects to define it and this is again to go on the objective of making your core more explicit, less like implicit that as uh, the, the your compiler needs to do this work. And uh, it is also kind of rethinking some of this Objective-C behavior in a Swift way. Uh, I'll go quickly to Swift 4.2 because there was a couple of version that like Swift 4.2 is kind of the, the in-between uh, version right now. Uh, in theory, it just got released. No, excuse me. It got released at the same time as iOS 12, where we were supposed to get the usually a major version. Uh, but b- the reason why it's not delayed, but it's taking more time to have a major version, it is because of the ABI stability. That is the main goal for Swift 5. So I think Apple and the Swift team are, we, uh, I've heard a lot of people complaining about the lack of binary stability. Can you explain what that means for people who aren't familiar? <laughs> Yes, of course. Uh, so 
like we just like I talked a lot today about the migrations. You write your code and it has its main syntax, and that syntax can change per version. But this syntax gets transformed into machine code that is like in a different file. That the that's what a compiler does for you when you write code and then it transforms it in like machine language, and that language right now is not consistent from version to version like the way they represent your code in machine language can change they might not store in the binary a specific commission in like that place or that other place i think one of the problems they're trying to fix too because they're trying to fix some of the string stuff again is like the string representation in the binary is not the same now so they want to make sure so they like really like what the software that runs your software so this the swift machine code needs to read in your binary to understand what your program does this changes per version because they were optimizing it differently and now they're kind of defining a structure that all swift version should follow meaning that if you have an application that is compiled now with swift 5 in theory in swift 10 it should still run if the swift runtime at that time still support those binaries of course there's going to be migration deprecation all that stuff but the idea is you don't need to recompile your code all the time to generate a different binary you can just keep the current binary and use it on future version of swift without having to recompile and have to change its underlying structure not the structure you write the structure that the compiler gives uh and the the, the structure that compiler outputs and that is big, especially when people want to share code. Of course, one of the best ways to share code is you share the code itself. But sometimes, for depend depending on your reasons, you might end up just sharing a binary for security reasons because it's a, pri- a proprietary software and you pay to have access to the stuff. You don't want to share the exact code base to others, but you want to share the binary. And now with Swift, you if you wanted to do so, you needed to compile a binary per version because your app couldn't link to a binary that it couldn't read. Meaning that if it's a Swift 4 app, it couldn't link to a Swift, it could link to a Swift 3 binary. It could link to Swift 3 code that would be compiled and understood in Swift 3 mode. But the binary itself, like the binary itself, couldn't be used inside the application. So it's a bit technical ABI stability. I'm sure I fucked up some of those explanations because I wouldn't say it's nebulous, but it is a bit at the same time. I, I would have been fine with a much higher level explanation of like, oh. well, you can just <laughs> okay, have a wow. library or something. But yeah, that's cool. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure. But yes, I think it is big. Because for me, the main benefit it will have is Apple will be able to include all of the Swift binary inside the OS and does not require all the apps to include them. It will it will translate into app developers having smaller binaries that their user needs to download. And in theory, in the big picture, less bandwidth that everybody is doing. Like... There's some developers, uh, I'm not saying I'm not one of them, but there's like, there's kind of an obsession sometimes. Uh, there's an obsession sometime about the size of binary and like, oh, my binary is smaller than yours and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, if your app to do what it does, uh, it needs to be under the uh, cellular download limit. And because of the Swift binaries, you were not under or just above 
it could be uh, quite problematic for you because you might lose some traffic or some market share that because those people are mainly on on cellular data, they are not able to download their app. So there's small benefits like these that ABI stability will bring for developers and for other specific developers, it will bring also like being able to ship a binary for your private is for your proprietary SDK that you pay to get access to it. Like there's business businesses, including Apple, that are dependent and require this to maybe adopt Swift in a bigger fashion. And that's what is exciting for me. The ABI stability is one thing, but I would say that what is more exciting than it is the fact that more and more developers will be able to use Swift. And that could mean that some of the APIs I use daily, whether it's Apple ones, third-party ones, they would become swiftier they like like you were saying they were might might less re, uh, depend on like delegates on the run objective c runtime because now that they are able to use swift to develop and maybe even like uh, share and like sell binaries that don't change and can be deployed with any future version of the app it might mean more developers will say oh i needed that check mark to be done for that language now I could consider Swift an, uh, like an opportunity to move my company or move my technology to that. And that's what for me is big about Swift 5. It is less about the API stability, the EBI stability, but more about the possible outcome of having more Swift developers, which means m- bigger and different technology that could help my day-to-day life. Yeah, like just for context for people who aren't Swift developers, like I think I don't remember the exact number, but as soon as you basically include one line of Swift code in your application, you pay a tax basically by joining the Swift library to it, which I think is about, I want to say 3.2 megs. Does that sound reasonable? Oh, I don't recall, but it's big. Yeah. It's a couple of megs for sure. But but yeah, but like, yeah, it's a tax that is non-negligible that you are adding. So if you're like an ad company or someone who has a third-party SDK of some kind, that you decide to use Swift because you're cool and forward-looking, and then you force all of the other people who are using your SDK to adopt your library, you just impose the 3.2 megabyte or whatever it is tax on their application, and they're not necessarily going to be happy, especially if like what your library does is very negligible in terms of code, right? Um, and I think like that's going to be like the big benefit to be gained uh, as soon as ABI stability comes. Not to mention like just not having to worry as much about dependency conflicts and all that stuff. Exactly. And right now, I haven't tried to run our current Swift to my uh, Swift to code base to see uh, with the latest Xcode beta. I don't think either of my colleagues did. Uh, did they? I don't think they did. Because the, the, the Swift 4.2 migration is so fresh in our code base that I don't think uh, nobody tried it. But what I'm, uh, what I want to say is I have a kind of while reading the change log, I've started to read quickly some of blog posts from people that follow the community. Uh, now I need to read the official Apple change log that is, uh, sh- that has shipped for like Swift 5 beta, uh, with Xcode 10.2. It feels to me that yet again, even if now, now, even if Swift 5 is a big, change that for typical ios app developers it might be just a small migration like going from like 4.0 to 4.1 like 
that a couple of metadata change or this call that got deprecated and then uh, UIKit gets better renaming of things, a better exposition of their FGTC API to Swift. Uh, there might be new feature that we used to have in Swift that now got changed and are no longer compatible, but that the migration will be simple even if the underlying technology is a big change. I might be wrong, but that's kind of my initial looking at it. Again, maybe in two years when I do another follow-up episode about Famous Swift. Famous last words. <laughs> I might say, yes, remember two years ago I was wrong. Yes, but uh, looking at it. The other thing that I don't want that I don't want to forget is we all, if you follow Swift, if you're a follow Apple too, you know that the father of Swift, uh, Chris Latner, uh, left to go to another company. He went to Tesla and now he's at Google doing AI stuff, which means that he's still part of the, uh, uh, I think he's still a maintainer of Swift too. Yes. He yes. And he's a co-host on the Swift community podcast. That's true. Yes. We were talking about that podcast, but my point is there has been for, especially in Swift 4.2 and in Swift 5, interesting changes that kind of brings dynamic functionality to Swift, but oh, they're shit. not for Objective-C. They are... So yes, that was my second mention. I knew I had a second mention of dynamism in Swift, but they are not for Objective-C per se. They are more for interoperability... Oh, interop with other languages. Let's put it this way. Yep. And it is mainly justified, and if you look, because most of those those two evolutions I'll mention, which the first one is dynamic member lookup and the second one that I seem to have to the name, the uh, dynamically callable types, which is more or less, I want to access a variable without it being defined in memory. We just say like any name, I can define it and the objects like figure out where this property is and the same thing can be applied to methods. Like those functionality were clearly were clearly asked by Chris. Let me look quickly. Yes, they were authored by Chris Latner, the evolution proposal, and they mentioned a lot different language. They're like, oh, but we want to do that because I might want to call use Swift to call like Python APIs or JavaScript APIs. Hmm, those are exactly the languages that TensorFlow uses, which Chris works on on his day job. Exactly. And that's kind of what, what I meant by like, ABI stability is one thing. There's like maybe different dynamism in Swift discussion that are be incoming, but it, I feel that with this openness and then with tackling big topics is we are, they are opening Swift to diff, new markets. And by bringing new markets in, yes, there might have been like more like, oh my God, we need to do this new way of coding in Objective C and Swift and blah, blah, blah. But in general, what it means is improvement in, in in this language and maybe bringing it in different places that the core Swift team would have not thought originally when they started to work on Swift. Like maybe having interrupt with other languages or other runtimes, like could be JavaScript, could be Python. And it makes it easier for Swift developers to go do AI or go do... Bitcoin mining, I don't know. Think whatever one. I think AI is a better example here because we have a, uh, like, we have like clear example with TensorFlow, like Yannick mentioned. But those two points that were both into, I think the first one, the dynamic member of the corp was introduced in Swift 4.2 and the dynamic callable objects are in, is about to ship in Swift 5 are interesting changes that kind of tells you about the future of Swift. I'm sure I mentioned it on a previous episode, but I would like to re-mention that there was a session last year at the TensorFlow conference 
by Chris Latner, where he introduced TensorFlow with Swift, which was completely surreal because it felt bonkers that Chris Latner was talking about Swift at a Google conference. Uh, but I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I think I mentioned it on the WWDC episode as like a weird, bizarro alternate reality WWDC you, session. Yes, you did uh, in this exact episode. And, and that's, that wraps up my long migration section. And the reason why it is long is it feels to me as a Swift developer that writes like really iOS apps that when you use Swift daily, that yes, you, you use a lot of the functionality I mentioned, like the new enums, the power of Swift, the power of tuples, like all of the new Swift functionality that were not available, that is not available in, in, uh, in Objective-C, but that migration is mainly looked by others or by me, by the Objective-C diehard these days as why you shouldn't do it. And my, my opinion to it is, yes, two years ago. I understand this opinion. I understand this feeling because you read all of the Swift developer complaining about the Swift through to a two to three migration. But these days, like they've learned, there was a, it was a pain point to do for the greater good now. And now looking at it two years after, like you can see why it was needed and where we are right now. And we are in a way better position. And to me, that's still the kind of the main gripe about Swift usage daily. Uh, there's the other one is also like, since we still have a shared code base with Objective C and Swift, the compilation time is still like sometimes messy, but it's still something part of all my discussion about saying that Apple is improving either the bridge from Objective C to Swift, like the translation layer from all the current APIs to make them available on Swift. Compilation time is something they've been improving and on any, uh, every version of Xcode since, uh, my Swift 2 episodes. So I spent a lot of time just to say, yes, it was something big in the last two years. I feel it's going to be something big in the next few years too, but it starts to feel more like what I hear people when they transition from like C++ 17, 14 to 17. Like there's stuff that breaks, but it is now more at a level where a mature language have that, have that every couple of years. And maybe with Swift 5, the next Swift 6 might be in a couple of years because we are at that level where it doesn't require like constant update or like it was in Swift 1, Swift 2, and Swift 3. Yeah, at a certain point, I think like the frameworks would be the thing that would need to evolve instead of the language itself. Oh, totally, totally. I think we are close to be there. And I think... ABI stability will help for this because Apple will be able to write APIs that are Swifty that can be written once, compiled once, and then used with new version without having constant needs, like if they were written in Objective-C. Yep. Next point, which this one will be short, which I talked uh, in the uh, past episode, was unit testing. Uh, we were a big proponent of using dynamic framework to mock. We are a big proponent of of the mock mentality of unit testing. That hasn't changed, but sadly, the tools we're using that were relying on the dynamic functionality of Objective-C are kind of useless with Swift. Uh, we, I kind of implied in that episode that yes, you could use them, but you kind of end up writing Swifty Objective-C code, uh, which we did not end up doing. We really re- like relied on like typical subclassing. And also one of the ground that people have with Swift is people and you, people mentioned that, oh, you end up creating protocol for everything, but protocol conformance is quite powerful. 
for unit testing because let's say you have a protocol and yes it is implemented by a class but in your test it might be just for marking purposes me simpler for a struct because all of these for that for swift is going like first class citizen like you end up with maybe what looks like a bit complicated more complicated code but in the end in the unit test it is not that burdensome to uh, create those mock objects there's also some other uh, frameworks that were created in the meantime uh, those are more relying on compiler based uh, solution I, I think one, I don't recall the name of that one but that uh, I know one of them where you annotate your objects and then it runs just after your compilation and before your unit test compilation and it creates kind of this swift file containing all of the mock objects for the object you annotated uh, with our team we've kind of decided to not use those and do them manually we end up that i, I know in our uh, main application we might have like four five to ten objects that we end up creating and we don't end up reusing every uh, unit test files because they are like kind of centralized object on our Swift architecture. So you don't want to kind of recreate them for no reason. So we just have kind of a mock definition. And to me, that's kind of a good compromise of either auto, like we could automate this and have slower builds or we can do the manual work once every blue moon and just do it. And it seems to me uh, quite simple uh, for that. So unit testing, has, my discussion hasn't changed. We're still continuing on that. I wish that we had the simplicity of of the mocking technology based on top of the OBCPI, maybe some of the, oh my goodness, I'm mentioning again. I should have not mentioned that I will stop mentioning dynamism Swift, but some of the dynamic behavior people are asking about Swift, like inf uh, not inference, but uh, introspection. Is that what they call it? Where you can kind of see the properties on an object? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so so, okay. There's introspection and reflection depending on yes. the language. Right, I was... Yes, they are both the same. I was I was thinking about reflection, but you're correct. Introspection works in this case. Uh, they're synonyms. That, like it you're works. correct. Yes, you're correct. Uh, so yes, I if maybe we Swift gains that, maybe some of those frameworks like OCMock could be more Swift compatible. But in the meantime, we rely into bar more barbaric uh, mocking strategies, which they still work and they still provide good value for your unit tests. Barbaric mocking strategies. That's a great title. <laughs> yes, they are, but that was not planned, like some of your titles in the recent episodes. Wow, I'm getting called out. <laughs> oh yes, come on. Sometimes I feel that you just like write the titles in your notes, just make sure you don't you name drop them. But that that's happened okay. once maybe. Okay, okay. Um now let's move to new topics. And let's start with the first one. Functional Maybe reactive programming. No, just functional programming. Depends. Depends on which tool you use, depending if it's RX Swift or Reactive Swift or Okay. I, I meant out of the box Swift. <laughs> yes, okay, but no personally I refer to those type those frameworks that give you this uh reactive programming. Uh because if if, for example, the framework will be, I'll be quickly talking about RX Swift is for reactive extension in Swift. Uh, but yes, so the reason why I'm bringing this is I think Yannick and I have been had, had strong opinions that pass about those frameworks and we are looking into those at work. Uh, one of my good colleagues used RX, uh, no, I think he used reactive Swift in a previous job and was looking at them and uh, now realized that RX is kind of the like 
not the best one but the most popular one so he was a big proponent of using those framework before uh, and it's kind of introducing our team to use those it is still early for me to say whether it's better to do it in rx like some of your async code in like reactive programming versus more like i will say traditional both like traditional operation i've seen like we've been quite good at using ns operation for a lot of shit in our code bases that um I start to see some benefits with this kind of, with this concept of stream of things that happens in your application that I like, I'm happy that we are exploring this avenue, but it feels to me that like async work in Swift still needs a solution. And right now as a team, we're exploring RX. Uh, I don't feel that I know it enough that I will talk in much detail except what I'm saying right now. Uh, I think maybe in a couple of weeks or in two years, I'll be able to have a better episode about it. But right now it is something new. We've seen, we, uh, my colleague implemented a day to day case. Like he had his own feature to implement that he used RX Swift to do, which is like for, for, it's not the trade secret. It's like making payments, right? So it's new payment integration. Uh, and, we used to have a like a recipe to do that, and now it diverged to this recipe. So it kind of gave us um, a day-to-day example of what we need to do async, usually in the usual way we do, and now what it looks like in RX Swift, and it is sparking a lot of good conversation. And I'm eager to see how the Swift core team will tackle those topics. I I think uh, in the past that. The community was quite vocal about, oh, what do you do with like, like async work? Like there's a, I think it's in C sharp that there's async await. Yes. Yes. So there's like other languages that have like native, not native support, but kind of a foundation or standard library support for async concept that doesn't rely on GDC, like, uh, a lot of Apple's technology. Where I'm not saying that GDC is bad. It's quite powerful, but there are not like kind of, first-class citizen of the language, whether they are in Objective-C or in Swift or even in C, they're like a framework part of the system. So the, a lot of the community has been pretty vocal and the Swift core team says, we have other shit to do now, that's going in the future. And I'm eager to see what there will be their results after they've done with ABI stability. It was kind of implied that it's the next thing. So in the meantime, we're looking at RX. We are also looking at a lot of like, uh, a lot of, not a lot, but some of the future slash promises library. Um, you kind of have this concept of futures in RX Swift, but it is kind of, I'm not sure if it's a subset. Since I'm still learning RX Swift, I'm not sure if it's like, like it includes future and promises as a like programmation concept, but it's like, a, it's a, it's a, a, that plus other stuff or it's that minus other stuff. So I'm still like figuring it out because all of this is super new for me and also super new for uh, some of my teammates. So uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, I haven't coded any of my uh, new features in RX. So, uh, but we had a good workshop with it and I'm eager to see what it is going to bring to my Swift uh, developer day to day in the near future. I feel like I should clarify that on the past, we've been kind of hard on frameworks like RX Swift and all of that stuff, mainly because I don't think it's wise to base your entire application on a third-party dependency that you might not necessarily be the best equipped to maintain yourself if suddenly it 
stops being supported. But I also think that like tools like RX Swift and all of that stuff are good tools to have in your toolcase because they can be better solutions to certain problems you're trying to solve than what's available out of the box. And if that's what you need, then sometimes it's worth taking the risk to actually do that thing. And I think RX Swift is broadly adopted enough in the industry right now that there's not much of a risk that overnight it'll just stop being maintained. That's good points. Uh, I, it's funny because, of course, uh, since it was kind of a, a small feature of an application, like I said, a new payment integration, um, we kind of added a lot of RX frameworks in the app just kind of <laughs> just for that. So you can imagine there was a lot of snark regarding this uh, because uh, I think personally my approach to third-party libraries is a bit what Yannick described and a lot of my colleagues are also uh, thinking the same so yeah uh, it, it caused a, a couple of funny discussion that oh now we have like three more frameworks in the application yay right but like <laughs> I, like I, I can like make fun of those people as much as I want but at the same time like people at work can point at me and I did the exact same thing and the current project we're working on because we have one page that is so complex that we needed a reactive view framework and i put it in there and now we have a reactive view framework that's loading <laughs> just because of that one page you know at least i only include it on that one page yeah yeah yeah. but yeah like uh, it's a uh, yes it kind of resembles the example we are having right now at work but at least uh everybody's kind of curious about this which is always important and uh it, it is solving some of the past issues we had with some of our async word that was heavily dependent on NS operation and operation queues. So I'm sure I'll report back on this. Uh, I would like to report back on this once I know more about it and I've like used it in more than just one feature, which might happen in the near future. But uh, that's mainly what I have said. It's just like where I'm slowly but surely venturing into that side of the Swift community. The other side that I'm quite curious about too, and I was quite curious in the previous episode, was Swift on the backend. And the main reason I want to quickly revisit this topic is because now Apple created a Swift server workgroup that includes a lot of people from the community, a lot of people at Apple, to make sure that there are tools to uh, uh, to bring Swift to the backend. And one of them was released, I think, a year ago at this point. Let me look one. Swift and I was released. Do 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 quickly. Do do do. Uh, but as I just said, Apple released a library called Swift NIO, which means non-blocking IO, which is a low-level framework to build fast and uh, I think non-blocking uh, backend applications. Uh, looking at it quickly here, the 1.0 was last February, so nearly a year ago. But NIO is kind of the base layer of what Apple said uh, I-level backend application are. And that's kind of what is happening right now. Uh, In the past few years, we had a couple couple of uh, companies that were heavily investing on Swift on the backend. Two that comes in mind is IBM with their Keturah platform services and kind of like the kind of IBM is trying to become AWS, but if you look at a lot of their product, they are mainly based on Swift being on the backend. So that's quite interesting for that. I haven't used Kitura yet, but I've uh, attended some of their uh, session information when I've attended Alconf and also seen some of their promoted uh, stuff. So I that's why I'm clear here, but say that it was 
promoted content by IBM. But recently, uh, some of my colleagues also played with Vapor. And that's why I was mentioning some uh, a lot of the concept about future and promises because NIO is based on these architecture concept uh, of future and promises for uh, the async work and vapor in the latest version is making well use of it and looking at it to be honest uh, especially with the vapor code it seems like a bit like the code yannick and i wrote to write the website for the podcast like simple routes and blah blah like simple routes it goes to this page and then simple routes maybe go uh, do a quick call in database so it feels to me that's I level enough for maybe iOS dev to go on the back end, but I wouldn't say low level enough, but like there's enough expert functionality that a back end developer can feel at home using those technologies. Uh, also, for people that are used to uh, the Apple uh, developer tools, like most of these. Swift on the backend technologies are using Xcode. You can debug through Xcode. So this is still a, a topic of interest and curiosity for me. Um, we're kind of working on um, an internal like test flight at work for that uh, for that using those technologies. So I'm eager to see how can I contribute to those. So that could be uh, my first foray into those topics that I would like to do uh, in the coming months. Cool. Have you have you looked into uh, Swift on the back end too much? No, I, I subscribed to the uh, Swift Community podcast, and I was hoping that soon they would release an episode about that because it is intriguing to me. Uh, the way you're talking about uh, Vapor makes it sound a lot like um, ASP.NET MVC, uh, which is what I work in day to day. So, I mean, we don't really have the need to interrupt with like Swift code that we write in mobile apps because we don't write mobile apps. Uh, but it would be interesting to like see what that is like. Yeah. And, and I know for Vapor, uh, I'm sure about IBM because, of course, uh, in most cases, IBM is also promoting their web services. Uh, but I know for Vapor that you could deploy them more or less everywhere. Uh, of course, Vapor, uh, the company itself, if I recall correctly, it's backed by kind of a consultancy firm. Yes, it is kind of backed by a consultancy firm that they, they needed something for them to do. And now they kind of developed that and made it open source. But, uh, like their stack can be deployed either on their own software service or it could be deployed to more or less everywhere that use Docker from what I've heard. Mm. So uh, that is quite flexible. So it could be like on AWS, could be on G Cloud, could be on, I think, Heroku too, that it support. Uh, so it's quite like flexible to a lot of what uh, backenders and web developers are used to. Good. So uh, last thing, I have uh, two small miscellaneous thoughts that I like to mention. Uh in the past episode, I was talking about mailing lists, our archaic <laughs> they were. And in the past two years, Swift, the community, migrated from mailing lists to something more modern, a little bit more modern. I don't know how you consider forums, but at least forums feels to me something modern enough. They're using discourse, which is great forum software. 
oh, it's this course because I really I was like navigating around recently on their forum and it is like quite good as a forum software. So I didn't know it was this course. Yep, it's what Select Button uses and I in- interact with every single day. I ah. refuse to go on any forums nowadays that do not use this course. <laughs> wow, okay. So that explains why it looks good and feels good. Yeah, uh, the forum. So yes, they have switched to a uh, forum. If I recall, it was a year and a half ago. If I recall, it's the Swift two to three mag- to the three to four migration or the three to two. Well, well, but it's uh like recent enough, and I think uh, I think that makes sense. I think for like software being developed in the public in twenty nineteen, like mailing lists, it was like something that needed to die quickly. But I guess Apple was used to that. Also, um. Something that we've done since we are now doing a lot of Swift code at work was to use a code linter for Swift. Mm. Uh, one of the, I would say one of the problems, one of the issues we had with Swift as Objective-C developers was Objective-C kind of became natural to us. How to write it, how to have our syntax. Yes, there's kind of couple of like style guides you could have for your code base. But in general, like if... Yannick had cold style, cold style A and I had cold style B. Like it was more or less like minute details of like the, the curly braces on our, like on a new line. It, like it, they were not like complete different cold style like some other languages have sometimes. Uh, I feel that depending from who wrote C++ code, sometimes like I can like somewhat read it to what the fuck is that code doing more or less. Uh, and I feel that a lot of other languages have this kind of discrepancies in code style because they're flexible and kind of encourage, like the community around them encourage different code style. Whereas Objective-C had a kind of quite strict code style provided by Apple, but also it was kind of the, the language kind of made it hard to go away from that code code style. Yeah, especially when they introduced Arc and suddenly method naming had to be consistent. Otherwise, the details of the reference counting wasn't going to work correctly right yeah it's funny because uh i've seen some of the swift bugs mentioned that are also that like uh, i think if you call your method new with like new blah 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 it wouldn't it would it would return you in a to released object and not mm-hmm. the, a retain object in swift and that was like ah the good old days of <laughs> management objective c i recall those days and i'm happy that they're past us but now it seems that they're back in swift because of the naming conventions that was funny when i saw this bug but uh yes uh so we are using swiftlint i think that's kind of right now the best one on our market uh it is is it is quite well maintained so it is uh it is hosted on under the realm company account on github uh it was developed by uh a guy i know but why is his name escaping me right now gp mm, uh, small yes so uh it was a previous uh ios uh, developer for the realm company which kind of develops a core data like uh, thing i'm sure all of the realm people are pissed at me because i compared it to core data but there are kind of de- they're developing their own like of uh, like local storage solution i think now one of the big pro big product is that they synchronize databases in between devices with the cloud and stuff so go see what they do but uh gp smile when he worked there developed this code linter called swift lint and uh now he moved away to i don't recall it's not not uber the other one 
My goodness, Lyft. I'm blinking. Yes, Lyft, if I recall correctly. But still maintaining it, and there's a big community around uh, Swift Lint. <laughs> so big that when we started the migration to Swift 4.2, uh, I think two weeks ago, when I started uh, doing it, we were kind of the progress of releasing a new version. So I wanted uh, the new version to be cut before we start merging stuff. And in that time span, they released two, uh, no, three new versions. I'm like, <laughs> seriously seriously so i guess it's a good problem to have when you're uh, updating your software uh frequently enough and you feel that there's a community behind it that you don't end up with like what Unix was saying a couple of minutes ago that you are stuck with open source software that you don't know how to maintain and nobody is there to maintain yep and uh it kind of helps us to norm not normalize but define the code style and code convention we kind of rely more or less on some of their automatic rules I think we've enabled some of them that are opt-in, but in general, we feel that what they're describing and also uh, I think they're basing it a lot on what Erika Sedun did in her book about Swift code style, which is now getting a second edition that we, I'm sure, will be buying because the first one, as far as I've read some of it, was amazing. So... uh SwiftNet is flexible enough, but the kind of default code style that they're providing is cool, is quite, uh, I would say quite consistent, but it feels like how Swift code should be written. So that's kind of helping us, like relying on people that might know better than us how to write, like have a proper Swift code style and then using their like using their judgment and stuff and then see how we can tweak it and having a a non-documented but documented code style without writing it. So it's uh we've been quite uh, successful at it. I'm quite happy that we've been using it. And uh, as my first time using a code linter, I'm quite happy with using a Swift lint. Okay, uh, it's nearly the end about uh this follow-up episode about Swift. Last topic I want to tackle is what about Objective C? Because Two years ago, when I we I started this episode, I was a new uh, Swift developer. Uh, to me, Swift, the when it was announced, was announced I think a year after I started my careers in iOS development, and I had the initial reaction of like, "Oh, really? Now that I'm starting to write Objective C like daily, I need to like learn a new language." And after my nine first months with Swift, it was unclear where, I wouldn't say it was unclear where Swift was going, but it was unclear where Swift will be going for iOS developers. There was a lot of ideas thrown. Uh, there was a lot of people worrying about what's going to happen with Objective-C. And after two years, you can realize that Objective-C is still there, but it's not getting the love you might think it would, it would have gotten in the past. Uh, all I think all of the changes I've seen in Objective C in the recent years are to make it more interop, to make it interop better with Swift, and that's it. Uh, you might have uh, I think the most changes I've seen it were added warnings and errors into the Clang static analyzer to make uh to make your life easier as an Objective C developer, but nothing really new. Like if you were expecting that Objective C as a language will evolve, I think. Now, two years later, you realize that that's kind of not going to happen, that the way it's going to evolve, it's going to be evolved by being replaced by Swift. I have a controversial opinion. Okay. 
you don't need to maintain Objective-C because Objective-C 2.0 was the perfect language to begin with. Maybe. <laughs> uh, I'm half-joking, by the I way. Know, I know you're half-joking. I know you're kind of like uh, using the arguments that the Objective-C diehards are using these days. Uh, I'm surprised that you're also not making fun of my big binaries like I just discussed uh, earlier. But... What I realized recently, and if we cue the uh, past episode about what sparks joy, um, oh great, yes, does Objective C spark joy? Hell yeah! You know what? I wouldn't say no, but I wouldn't say wouldn't say hell yeah. Personally, when I have to go back fixing some of our code base that makes sense to fix in code bases. Sometimes it's frustrating because now I, I realize that I have a cyclic dependencies because it's Objective-C that depends on Swift, that Swift depends on, on Objective-C. So then now the compiler is like, come on, dude, you cannot have a cyclic <laughs> dependency for this. So that is kind of what was more happening is I end up having maybe sometimes like reasons, reasons to rewrite in Swift, or in most cases, it's not reasons to rewrite in Swift. It forces me to write it in Objective-C. And there's stuff I like. I still somewhat like Objective-C, but on the SparkJoy scale, Swift is now higher than Objective-C, which thinking about it these days makes sense because that's the language that I use the most, A, and B, that's the one that is getting evolved the most. So now I'm like, oh, here's this new feature. And I'm like getting excited every like year because Apple is modifying it so much that like you kind of go in the kind of the bandwagon of like iOS releases. Oh, this new feature. Oh, that new feature. And then you don't realize that your old friend is kind of left untouched on the uh, corner. So that's kind of my current kind of somewhat, not controversial, but somewhat like kind of reticent opinion about the is like, I don't mind going back and uh going back and modify and add some GTC code, but I know that we won't add like like ten thousand files on GTC. Like I mean, it's exaggerating, but you 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 see what I mean. It's like all of our new code isn't written in Swift because we know Apple is going there and we are going there too. And on an infinite time scale, of course, most God of our co- yes, most of our code base will be rewritten and. Part well, if it's infinite, it will all be rewritten. Yes. <laughs> okay, yes, all of it. But um, that's kind of it. I, 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 I'm kind of leaving it on a sad note for this. That's not the intention. Wait, why is it sad? I, I don't parse why this is sad. Because we're putting aside Objective-C? You know, it's kind of when you realize that you need to move... No. Okay, I'm, I'm making a bad analogy here, but it's kind of when you realize that you need to move forward with something in life, but you're reminiscent of your memories with whether the person, the object, whatever. I'm still quoting some of Marie Kondo stuff this yeah. episode, but you still, you kind of, you kind of can feel sad because you're remembering your past memories, your past experiences about what that object used to bring you joy, but it might not bring you joy now anymore. And that's yeah. what's sad about it. Well, I think if we summarize with sort of my view on the Objective-C Swift split, personally, I prefer Objective-C to Swift. Even modern Swift, I prefer Objective-C to it simply because it feels like a higher level language than Swift is. I know that technically like this isn't really true, but just because of the <laughs> way method dispatch works and 
how used to it I am and all of that stuff, like I can prototype stuff much faster in Objective C than I can in Swift. And of course, like, of course there's learning curve, which I never really got over the entire Swift learning curve before stopping iOS development. So there's some of that in there, definitely. But stylistically and everything, I feel that Objective-C and Swift serve two different purposes. Objective-C, and I think we had an episode where I mentioned this, but Objective-C is really much more of a fun language that is interesting to hack in. And if you gave me the choice, like I would only code in those kinds of languages. I see it as a kind of like, a Ruby or a Lua, like one of these like mm. high level languages that is fun to hack in. Whereas Swift, I understand like there are plenty of advantages to it that make it a better language for work work where it has a stricter type system. So there's a bunch of other stuff that uh, advantages that it can give me, which were advantages that I sort of gained when I switched to C sharp and TypeScript previously uh, at my old job. And uh, you need to be more explicit about certain runtime things because like, not only does the compiler need to know these things, but also because they want you to be conscious of it. Uh, and I think like, to me, it's a lot less fun to work in Swift, but I can see the advantages of it. And of course, like you never do what Apple doesn't want you to do unless you're like Xamarin developer, in which case like you don't give a shit, but <laughs> oh yeah, 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 sorry. Uh, but it's still true. Uh, but yeah, like, you're going to have not much of a choice but to get on board with Swift because eventually Apple is going to leave you behind if you don't, even though they claim that getting rid of Objective-C is not in the cards for now. And I, I kind of believe them, but it seems inevitable that Swift is going to take over eventually. Uh, like you're doing your business a disservice if you're not actually using Swift right now or trying to adopt Swift for your applications. And I, th- I think that's kind of where I was going to. And that's kind of not my sadness, but my remembering fond memories of me learning iOS development and all that stuff. Knowing that right now, if you were telling me like, oh, I'm still writing this year, I will be like, dude, what the fuck? Like, what's your reason? Like, and if your reason is like, oh, I'm getting used to it, it's like, yes, but you should like strongly consider learning Swift because in 2019, if you don't do it, I do believe that you're in the past already. Right. But like, I have a, a memo document in my notes, which is like, app ideas that I would want to do someday. And like, I'm going to channel Mary Kondo again, that probably I'm never going to get to them. And I should just throw the memo out. But they are good ideas. And I have good names for them. And I want to keep them in case someday I have free time or I get fired or something and I need something to do. Today, if I were to do those apps, like, of course, I still have a day job. I would rather do them in Objective C, though I am fully conscious that the correct choice would be to do it in Swift. Whereas if I was still an independent developer and I had to make these apps seriously, I would do them in Swift because I would be too afraid of getting screwed down the line by ditching Objective-C. Mm. Still, if you plan to do so, uh, try try Swift. Just I mean, friendly advice. Just friendly advice. But I, I understand your argument. Here is sure. a prayer to Apple. Please make a UI framework that works natively in Swift. Please, 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 please. Yes, and I think if that were to happen, like the rumor kind of implied last year, I think that will change the argument. And I feel that that's where we are right now as iOS dev. That's where the pain point is. Even if every version, like I was saying, they're improving, improving, improving the import uh, functionality of UIKit and all of those frameworks, they still don't feel like Swifty. Like all of your code base except the UI feels doesn't yeah. feel Swifty. That's, that's, I think for me, 
I hope the next big thing they will be tackling. Yep. And like, if, if I want to make an analogy to our um, favorite uh, favorite Apple products episode, like I'm pretty sure Objective C right after Arc came out is like my iOS 4.2.1 of. Uh, mm. of programming languages because it's just the language I love the most to develop in. So there you go. Good. So that was my follow-up episodes two years later. That was supposed to be, I think. So if you recall correctly, this uh, the my Swift my original Swift episode was the last episode before one of our, our IATs because you were going to Japan. I was like, oh, I'll come back after Japan. So yes. So Let's episode say that your trip, seven? No, it was episode 55. Okay, okay. So yeah. there were multiple hiatuses. Yes. So that's why I said it was before one of our hiatuses. Uh, but yes, so let's just say that, yeah, first of all, I want to say Yannick was not on an hiatus for the last two years in Japan, even if he would have loved to be in Japan for the last two years. Oh, hell yeah. And hopefully the next episode about Swift won't be in two years. Uh, I hope that I'll be able to come back and talk about it on different other topics. And I think uh, this year I'll be tackling different topics in Swift that might be worth having later discussion later this year. Cool. Is that it? It is it. I'm going to have a fun time editing this episode. <laughs> it's going to be long. <laughs> it's been a while since we had a long episode. That's true. Yes, but we've had requests for longer episodes, so there you go. You gr- wish granted if you could understand any of it. <laughs> so if you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 106, or you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I am at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Luc Olivier at Luconoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you cannot find Yannick on micro.blog anymore. Nope. Sorry. Sorry. Well, technically my account is still there, but I can't post to it. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So... Take uh, take advantage of Unix account while it's still there, un- unless it gets deleted in like in thirty days or ninety days. On I don't know what's the deletion process for this, but as far as I know, there is no deletion deadline yet, uh, or at least the that's what it was last time I listened to Corin Duishman and Menton was talking about it. So, oh well, so maybe in the near future we'll find Unix on Mastodon. Who knows? Mm, well, there's a whole other story about that, but that's for <laughs> another time. <laughs> yes. In the meantime, see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.